back to the Freed Thinker Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Vela. We have a great show for you today, but first I want to give a shout out to my friend Nicholas Persesi and all of his help with the tech side of this podcast. Without him, uh, you all wouldn't be hearing this episode or the past couple episodes. Uh, iTunes seemed to have been intent on keeping this podcast from uh, being accessible in the iTunes store, but Nicholas spent uh, pretty much weeks, I think uh, um, over a month, uh, working with them to fix some of the coding issues uh, and some, uh, some other things going on uh, and get everything uh, in order so we can be back up and running. So a big thank you to Nicholas. I also wanted to let you all know about a new, well, quasi-new podcast that I'm involved in uh, with Nicholas and our good friend Brandon Kristen. Uh, as some of you know, we dabbled a little bit in a podcast a while back called the Vienna Triangle. Uh, well, due to some time constraints and our busy schedules, uh, pretty much all of us are in master's programs. Nicholas is in a PhD program as well. Uh, it never really got off the ground because we couldn't really dedicate that much time to it. Well, We've uh, kind of come to a new place in all of our lives, and we've learned from our past mistakes, and we're relaunching that series under a little bit less obscure title, and we're calling it Fight Club. The middle children of history, man. No purpose, no place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. Yes, that's PH Fight Club and will be for those philosophiles out there. Uh, so start checking out the Facebook group uh, for some good articles and discussions and check your iTunes for the feed. Now, uh, with all that said, what, we, uh, what do we have on the docket for today? Well, we're going to pick up where we left off last time in responding to a series of episodes on the unthinking. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I mean the Thinking Atheist radio show, where he and his guests from the Atheist Experience, Matthew Dillahunty and Tracy Harris, as well as guests Aaron Ra, are engaging in basically what amounts to extended genetic fallacies and psychologizing, mixed in with misrepresentations, and a whole lot of gross caricature, caricatures, uh, all in the name of counter-apologetics. <laughs> In the last episode, we dealt with uh, their, uh, well, rants uh, about the cosmological argument, which they actually barely even discussed, and are now picking up at about the 38 and a half minute mark where they're transitioning into discussing Pascal's wager. You know, because so many apologists and Christian scholars actually use Pascal's wager <laughs> or something. Uh, so with, with that, Enjoy the show. Speak about hell, we have to speak about Pascal's wager, which is a, a common position that I hear. It's, I don't hear a lot from apologists on the stage, but I hear it a lot from people usually in my inbox. You know, oh, I'll be laughing when you're in hell, or they're sending me a message saying, I have some doubts, but I'm terrified. I'm terrified. Anybody on the uh, call here want to explain Pascal's wager to the audience for those who may not know what it is? I'll be laughing while you're in hell. Ugh. Does does he really think that that is an expression of Pascal's wager? I mean, d does he think that that is Pascal's wager? 
I'm not a huge fan of the wager myself, and neither are most theologians or apologists or scholars that I know of, which is why he doesn't hear it from any of us that often, but rather uh, from people emailing him, apparently saying that they're laughing while he's in hell, because, by the way, those are the best representatives that we should be engaging with. But should I also think that every time I'm told by some crank atheist that they wish I was shot dead in the street, that they're offering some type of atheistic anti-Pascal's wager? I mean, come on. Or, I mean, I, I mean I, I'm kind of at a loss for what to say. I, I mean, is it, is it that those people who tell them that they're terrified... Is that what Pascal's wager is? I mean, is that what he thinks Pascal's wager? That those people who, who, who are kind of faking their way through belief but are terrified, I mean, is that Pascal's wager? Does that what the unthinking atheists really think are good illustrations of the argument? I know I just talked for a lot, but I was actually thinking that I wanted to come back to that. So now that you're bringing it up, if I can just jump in one more time. Please do. There's these telltale signs about the fear. The Christians will come at you and they'll just be like, no, it's about God's love. God loves you. God wants what's best for you. I know God was, you know, it's not about fear because you'll be like, oh, it's just fear of hell keeping. No, it's not the fear of hell. But it's amazing how quickly they pull out Pascal's wager. And they expect it to be compelling to you. Yes, Tracy. Christianity is about God's love. You know, that whole God so loved the world, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? All of those. I mean, yes, Christianity is about God's love. Just because you were raised in some weird fundamentalist pagan Pelagianism based on fear doesn't mean that that is what Christianity is. Uh, again, legalism and paganism and Pelagianism have never really been viewed as Orthodox Christianity. Again, this is just Tracy showing that she doesn't even understand the first thing about historic Orthodox Christianity or the gospel. And I needed a, for instance, uh, for who, Tracy? Who quickly goes to Pascal's wager? I mean, I'm in these discussions all the time. I mean, hun hundreds and hundreds of threads constantly revolving through a bunch of these things and I can't remember a single time that someone's really argued from Pascal's wager. I mean, I'm sure that it has come up at some point, but I just honestly can't remember when and yet this is what comes up all the time. Well, define it for me, Tracy. Okay, define well, Pascal's, Pascal's wager is, is just basically the what if you're wrong? What if you're wrong? What are you risking here? It's the thing that I was afraid of when I was praying every night, that I don't want to go to hell, and, and I am having trouble believing that there really is a God there, but oh my gosh, I'm so terrified because they've drilled this hell into me so in such a real way that I'm terrified that I might end up in hell unwittingly because I can't make myself believe. So I'm putting all this pressure on myself even when I'm not in church. So the it's fire insurance, essentially. It's it's not true conviction. It's, you know what, I'm going to play this poker hand over here because well, I think it's like fire be insurance hand. except that I have, like, you know, for example, homeowner's insurance, right? But I don't think my house is going to burn down. It's just kind of, oh, in case. But it's like fire insurance if you go to bed every night thinking your house is going to burn down. Yeah. 
right? I mean, it's like that kind of fire insurance where you're just like, holy cow, my house might burn down tonight, and then what do I? I mean, it's like somebody that is just paranoidly afraid of the house burning down buying insurance. You're just not going to not buy it, you know. It, so you have to force yourself to find some way to believe this thing. But this is why when you tell a Christian, well, what if I told you there were these fairies and they're going to torture you if you don't believe in them, and they're just like, oh, you're being silly now. And they really don't understand how silly what they're saying. It sounds just like that to the person that doesn't believe, but they don't understand that because the consequence is so real to them. And it was so real to me, even though I didn't even know whether or not to believe in it. It was just that risk had been raised to such a realistic degree in my head as a child that I couldn't really shake it at that young age. And I didn't believe because I had no experience with it, that I could ever shake it, that this would ever be gone. I thought that everyone must be plagued by doubt, right? And that's why when you go to an unbeliever and you believe and you're talking to them, you're, you're like, but aren't you concerned about your soul if you're wrong? And you really think that's compelling because it compelled the hell out of you, right? I mean, it terrified you as the indoctrinated Christian. And, and when someone's not indoctrinated or when they've gotten out of that, it's almost, and that's one of the things too where, that I talk about how Christians cannot believe that you don't believe. They can't even be in your shoes enough to argue in a way that's compelling to you because they have zero understanding. I don't mean all of them. I'm talking about this specific type of Christian has no grasp on the mind that is not sitting around doubting and in fear. Fear, 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 fear. I mean, Besides that they are completely misrepresenting what Pascal's wager really is, this little Tracy tirade is just more evidence that she's just expressing the kind of fundamentalism she came out of and thinking that that's just what Christianity is. That we all just sit around terrified at night that we're going to hell or terrified of losing our beliefs because what if we go to hell uh, and, 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 and what if, what if, what if we, just, we just can't make ourselves believe I mean, this is just so ludicrous that it's hard to take her seriously beyond beyond just kind of sympathy that she clearly just had a really poor experience of a kind of Christless Christianity growing up. Okay, so since Tracy seems unable to give an adequate summary of Pascal's wager, let me really briefly sketch it out for you. And remember, I'm not even a fan of the argument, and I shouldn't even really call it an argument because it's not really even an argument for God's existence. So while I'm not a fan, and I have no ground to defend here, besides the fact that if we're going to just be intellectually honest with each other, we should engage with the actual positions and concepts and not grossly misrepresent them just to make ourselves look like we have scored some rhetorical points. Okay, so in the 17th century, there was this mathematician and physicist and philosopher named Blaise Pascal. And Pascal penned a series of notes and reflections throughout his life that were later compiled after his death in a book called Pensées, which basically means thoughts. The wager is actually drawn from a couple different places in the Pensée, but the point is not to argue someone into belief. In fact, it's not even meant to be compelling to the indefatigable skeptic, or even to compel anyone to believe. The wager is meant for a person who believes but doubts not the unbelieving skeptic, but to the unsure one, the one who thinks that it's basically a toss-up either way. Now, one of my favorite novels is Brothers Karamazov, and in that novel, Dostoevsky has a woman who's struggling with her belief in God, 
Uh, and she comes to this really famous monk, Monk uh, Zosima, uh, and asks him how sh can she know that God exists. You see, she's lost the faith that she had as a child because she's been reading science and philosophy of her day. And she asks him, quote, what if when I come to die, there are only flowers on my grave? How can I get my faith back? How can I prove it to myself? End quote. Now, this wise old monk, Father Susima, uh, tells her that there's no way to get her childish faith back and that she shouldn't. Rather, if she wants to know God, she must love unquestionably, unswervingly, and without reserve, love her fellow man. Then she will come to see the faith of God in the souls of her neighbors. Love will be the light to her path to God, but only if she exercises it, not just in thought, but in persistent action, because love in theory is just what her childish faith was. He says, quote, I can tell you nothing more comforting than this, for love in action is harsh, a dreadful thing compared to love and dreams, end quote. Pascal's wager is like the love in action, but Tracy and the unthinking atheist are here treating it as if it is extolling the childish love of dreams, that it is just pleading with us to close our eyes and fake belief because we're too scared of hell and that there might be nothing after death. Pascal's wager is for the person who is not sure and it does not call us to fake belief, but to action, to choice. It's, it's, it's the shallow kind of worldview that thinks we cannot choose belief or choose love, for example. Both can rightly be understood as verbs, as volitional actions. Here, Tracy and her buddies are plagued by their understanding of faith as blind faith, as belief without evidence. Because of this, they don't understand that Pascal's wager is not a wager of the intellect. It is a wager of the will. It is a call to action and one that we must choose to make. Peter Kreeft, in his book uh, on the Pensee uh, called Christianity for Modern, Modern Pagans, writes this, quote, We are condemned to freedom, to use Sartre's formula. There is no choice, says Pascal. That is, we cannot choose whether or not we must choose. We must choose, though we are free to choose unbelief or belief. Why can't we choose not to choose? Why can't we choose agnosticism? Because we are already committed, that is, embarked as on a ship. We are moving past a port that claims to be our true home. We can choose to turn and put in at this port, that is, to believe, or refuse to it, that is, to disbelieve. But we cannot choose to stay motionless out at sea, for we are not motionless. We are dying. Our journey and our fuel is finite. Someday soon, the fuel will run out, and we will no longer be able to choose to put in at the port of God to believe, for we will have no more time. In other words, to every possible question life presents, there are three possible answers. Yes, no, and evasion. Death removes the third answer. The home port, you see, is not just an idea that God exists. It is a marriage proposal from this God. Not to say yes is eventually to say no. Suppose Romeo proposes to Juliet, and she says neither yes nor no, 
but wait. Suppose that wait lasts and lasts until she dies. Then her wait becomes no. Death turns agnosticism into atheism, for death turns tomorrow into never. Once this is clear, that a choice must be made, that there are only two alternatives, not three, the next step is easy. Once Pascal has you out of indifference and onto the battlefield, it becomes very clear which side is the wise one to choose. Not choosing sides is much more popular than choosing the wrong side. Agnosticism is much more respectable than atheism. Even though his reputation of atheism takes 50 sentences and his reputation of agnosticism takes only one, the crucial battle is here in this one. End quote. The point of the wager is not turn or burn. It's not to make you so afraid of burning in hell that you just fake it till you make it. Again, I'm, I'm not even a huge fan of the, wave, uh, of the wager, but if you're going to engage with it, at least you should know what you're talking about and not repeatedly misrepresent it just to ridicule Christians as being a fearful kind of folk. And that whole bit about that we cannot imagine what it's like to live in fear and not believe is just total tripe nonsense. I mean, this is really the best that she has to offer, and it's abysmally bad. Again, I keep saying to myself, is this really what passes for reason with these people? And this brings us to our next installment. You might be an atheist fundamentalist if... You might be an atheist fundamentalist if you say Pascal's wager is just fear of hell, even though Pascal's wager has nothing to do with hell. <laughs> and yes, that's number 403 on the Tectonics list. I didn't just invent that one for this show. Uh, great minds think alike. Okay, back to the show. They think if you aren't a Christian, if you aren't believing in God, if you're not a theist, you have got to be awake at night just wondering and, and worrying. Really? We think that if you aren't a theist, you just lay awake every night wondering and worrying. Not one time have I thought that. I mean, this is just bigotry from Tracy. I, I, I mean, the whole irony of this thing is that she's trying to say that Christians don't understand atheists because apparently we all think they're just fearful. But all she's doing is misrepresenting us. I mean, the irony of this is just astounding. Hell is really a brilliant mechanism for control. Well, Christianity in particular and religions in general exploit whatever it possibly can, whatever fear it can find, whatever need it can find, whether you're afraid of death or loneliness or uncertainty or insecurity, sexuality, even community, the fear of injustice, the need for some kind of cosmic justice and morality. One kind of quick side note on Pascal's Wager is that at one point on the TV show, I had to declare moratorium on Pascal's Wager and just said, we won't take any more calls on this because it is simply the most wrong argument that has ever been offered for the existence of God. I mean, okay, this is what passes for reason. Hell is just fear-mongering. Did, did you guys know that? All of us religious folk we're just out to control people with fear and we'll use anything we can do to do it. <laughs> I mean, this is just absolutely ridiculous. Not only does it have zero to do with the truth or falsity of any religious worldview or proposition, 
and it's just continuing the, the trajectory of genetic fallacies laced with psychologizing. But notice that when Matty D jumps in to talk about how he, he had to put a moratorium on the wager on the show, nothing like a little censorship among friends, right? He does it because it's, quote, the most wrong argument for the existence of God, end quote. Well, Maddie, it's not meant to be an argument for the existence of God. It's not even really an argument. I mean, here he's just showing that he's so biased that he, he just can't even understand the concepts that are put before him. And in strictest forms, it's basically saying, hey, look, if you live your whole life and you believe in God and it turns out you're wrong, you haven't lost anything. And if you live your whole life and you, you do believe in God, then you've gained everything. And it's kind of a cost-benefit analysis. And the problems with Pascal's wager, number one, it's a false dichotomy. It's just atheism versus this particular version of Christianity. Number two, it assumes that you can just choose to believe whatever you want to believe. Number three, it assumes that belief itself is the primary condition for salvation, which isn't necessarily true under different even Christian models. It assumes that you could trick a god uh, into, you know, hey, I took the safe bet option and said that I believed in you, you know, it kind of equates professions of belief with actual belief, you know, this result of being convinced. It ignores other heavens and other hells. I mean, and, and we could go on forever. It is probably the most horribly broken argument I've ever seen, and yet it is one of the most common. Okay, let's look over these for a second. First, Remember that Maddie here is treating the wager as if it's supposed to be an argument for God, which it isn't. It's not even an argument. But for the sake of argument, let's go over his objections here for a second. Number one, it's a false dichotomy because it pits atheism versus just this conception of Christianity. Well, this might be an interesting point if the wager was an argument for God. You, you might reasonably object, well, why not bet on Allah? The problem is, it's not an argument for the existence of God. It's a summons for doubters, the one who thinks it could go either way. And it's not a call to believe in one concept of God. It's an appeal to the will. Number two, it assumes we can arbitrarily choose what we believe. Not really. Again, it isn't a call to some propositional uh, acceptance. It's a call to, quote-unquote, belief in the way that belief has historically been used by Christianity. That is, to faith, to trust. It's not to a position of saying, I believe that P is true. Kreeft puts it this way, quote, It is like a leap out of a burning building into a cloud of smoke on the street below, out of which has come a voice saying, Jump! I'm holding a safety net. I see you even though you can't see me. Trust me. Jump. Faith is a leap, not a demonstration. End quote. Now, Kreeft is not here saying that faith is belief without evidence, for surely the voice coming out of the smoke is evidence. What he's getting at is that faith in Christianity is not an act of the intellect. It's never been viewed that way. It's an act of of volition. It's an act of the will, and it's an act that we cannot do halfway. We cannot halfway leap out of a burning building. We can't halfway board an airplane because we trust that it will get, get us to our destination safely. We can't halfway get married. 
These acts of trust are acts of the will, but they are ones that we either fully commit to or not at all. Here, Maddie's little objection falls flat because he's just failed to grasp what the wager is and is treating it as if it's meant to be something that it's not. Number three, belief is primarily uh, is belief is primary is the primary condition for salvation here the major problem is that <laughs> the wager doesn't promise salvation again it's not even really about belief in the cognitive sense so he's already starts off on the wrong foot but it also doesn't promise salvation nowhere in the wager does it say hey if you give in and fake belief you'll be saved number four that somehow it can trick god Again, because he thinks that the wager is meant to garner belief in the propositional sense and that somehow the wager promises salvation for that fake belief, then he thinks that it's also plagued by the problem that we can trick God into saving us by that false profession of a false belief. This just crumbles like a house of cards considering that it's built on so many faulty premises. But the other major problem is that it ignores what the wager actually says about God. For Pascal and historic Christianity, placing trust in God is pleasing to God, even if it's done as through a glass darkly. God will, of course, not be content with such a minimal act of faith, but he surely will honor it. Kreef says again, quote, Like a parent watching baby toddle, God our Father is easy to please, but hard to satisfy, end quote. That is, that God, like a parent, loves the first step, but will not be content with just the first step. Number five, it ignores other heavens and other hells. This is really just, isn't really the new objection, it's just a recasting of the first one about only choosing one kind of Christianity or theism over others. But hey, if it struck out last time, why not give it another crack at the plate? And yet it is one of the most common, and it's many times offered up, you know, I've heard Kirk Cameron offered up as the epiphany that he had, Kirk's epiphany that moved him from devout atheist, supposedly, to fundamentalist Christian, was, what if I'm wrong? And that is nothing but the simplest version of Pascal's rager, and it's an example of religions exploiting anything that it possibly can. One of the most common, seriously? And who does he give as an example? Kirk Cameron. And here he says that Kirk Cameron's epiphany was the question, what if I'm wrong? I mean, y you do have to love the irony, by the way, of a skeptic lambasting someone for questioning whether or not their beliefs are true. I mean, did, did you all catch that? So for Maddie D here, Cameron's epiphany is stupid. Why? Because it started out with the question, well, what if I'm actually wrong about what I believe? I mean, tell me you catch the irony of that coming from a so-called skeptic and free thinker mocking someone asking, what if what I believe is wrong? You caught the irony, right? And, and look, I'm not a Kirk Cameron fan either, and so I've no axe to grind, but Matt here uh, says an off-the-cuff comment that just these kind of comments get under my skin and show that the kind of absurd psychologizing that they've been content with so far is just, uh, it's just masked 
bigotry. I, I'm, I mean, there's no other way to put it. Notice he says that Kirk went from devout atheism, supposedly. Supposedly. I mean, this kind of, well, you weren't a true atheist kind of supposedly is just stupid. I'm sorry, Matt. It's stupid. What is gained by basically insinuating that someone is lying about their previous beliefs besides making yourself look like an uncharitable bigot? I mean, this is the kind of rhetoric and reason that you all find compelling, right? I mean, I mean, if this is what enlightened rationalism is, <laughs> then <laughs> no thank you. And, and why is this an example of religions exploiting whatever they can? Kirk Cameron is just saying what caused him to have an epiphany. There's no institutional coercion or conspiracy or force here. To take Cameron's personal biography as, as if this is evidence against some religious totalitarianism just screams bigot. In fact, what I'm finding is that these guys are the ones willing to use anything, even downright dishonesty and deception, in order to try and push their rhetoric across. I mean, so far, I don't think we've heard a single rational statement yet from anyone in almost an hour of the show so far. And most of the comments have been so misrepresentative that it's hard to imagine that anyone takes these people seriously. You know, hey, if you're not too worried about death, then okay, then, you know, we're not going to maybe foist that one on you, but you might be worried about being lonely. You might be worried about cosmic justice and everything. I, I used to say that every debate that I've ever done has, has come down to morality, except that that didn't happen in the debate with size. <laughs> that, that's like the first one that didn't devolve yeah. into a discussion of morality. Again, so what? Notice that he's putting the worst possible psychological spin on this as possible. Okay, what if someone does come to believe in God because they're lonely and they find God to be a comfort? Does that mean that it's false? No. In fact, we find the same kind of psych subjective psychology reasons for people believing in all kinds of things, including atheism. Maybe, maybe they are an atheist because they are concerned with injustice and think religions have been historically unjust. Does that make their atheism just an abuse of the human condition? I mean, again, this kind of genetic fallacy and psychologizing is so far the only thing that they presented with us over this whole 45 minutes so far. It's just ridiculous. But wait, it's about to get better. Because just when you think it couldn't get any worse, here comes Tracy. I actually compared Pascal's wager recently to the limited time offer. The, the limited time offer. Here we go. You know, the limited time offer. It's the thing to put pressure. Yeah. I was using an example of Matt knows, the example of the balls in the jar and whether they're odd or even. And I, I went into the idea of but what if I say to you that you need to believe that these balls are even or else something really bad will happen to you, right? If you don't believe that there's an even amount of balls in the jar, terrible things will occur. Your house will fall down. Your family will die, like all these awful things if you don't believe it. And I was pointing out how ridiculous that sounds, but also pointing out that if I didn't say that, you really wouldn't care how many balls were in the jar. Balls in the jar. I mean, do you see the the utter trivialization. Not only that, but notice that 
she again is just thinking of Pascal's wager as if it is an appeal to propositional belief. That the wager is a limited time offer, say that you must believe that P is true, and if you don't believe that P is true, then your house will burn forever. I think Kreef's comment above about the wager being like a marriage proposal or like being a ship at sea are apt correctives for this, but here notice again that they cannot even have integrity and engage with the actual wager itself. Let me remind you, I'm not a fan of the wager. I never use it. But all they're doing is showing how biased they are. They can't even understand concepts placed before them. It's not like the wager is really that complex of a concept either. Yeah, you know, The question itself is completely unimportant if you don't try to make ways to make it important. And I think the God question is kind of like that. If you don't put these little pressure things, these little, you know, but you have to decide, you have to make a decision. Uh, there's a lot of people that would just put it off and say, yeah, I don't see that there's enough evidence, and so I'm just not going to make a decision. I'm not going to believe it. I'm just going to well, wait. Why not? Here she thinks that Christians are just inventing ways to make the God question important. Look, whether God exists or not is immensely important. Most atheists throughout history have thought the same way. It, it's not as if we're inventing limited time offers just so atheists will keep playing with us in the sandbox. If there is a God and if we are in his creation and death is rapidly approaching and we are sinners that need, uh, uh, that need some type of redemption, then yes, that's important. The only reason that she can say that it isn't important is because she already believes that no such God exists. For her, it isn't important because she's already decided on what she thinks is true, which is fine. She's set her ship past the port. But again, the wager isn't meant for people like her. She cannot say that the question is unimportant unless she already thinks that she has answered the question, in which case the wager isn't meant to be posed for her. I'm reminded, I, I know you guys are jumping in here, but I'm reminded of a, um, I went to a private Christian school and they did a play and it was Satan and Wormwood and they were having discussions about how to defeat Yahweh and how to bring as many people to hell as possible. And Satan said out loud to Wormwood, he's making suggestions and he said, we should tell them there is no God and Wormwood's like, no, 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 they'll never buy it. And uh, let's tell them there is no Satan. No, 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 they'll never buy it. And then the third argument, which they ran with, was let's tell them there is no hurry. And we hear that often during all of the uh, altar calls. You could die tonight on your drive home tonight. Could you, if you die this evening, would you know that you were going to spend an eternity in heaven with Jesus? And that was the limited time offer thing that Tracy's talking about. It's yeah, get right with analogy. God. You want to get right with God, and you can't <laughs> put it off, right? Notice here. They're not even arguing anymore. I mean, they, they've kind of, they've even gone past genetic fallacies and psychologizing into just flat out mockery. I mean, if God exists and if we're sinful and need redemption, then yes, dying tonight would have very serious consequences. Or if he doesn't, then they wouldn't. Notice they haven't made a single argument. They're just assuming. Well, look how stupid that is. The limited time nature of it is only stupid if you already believe that nothing is going to happen when you die. That is, if you already believe there is no God. They've just moved from genetic fallacy to begging the question to flat out mockery. Again, this is what passes for reason with these people. Yeah, that exactly. That was exactly the point that I was going to make. If you died tonight, yeah. that, is, that is Pascal's wager in yet another form.
All right, yeah, if you want like to jump, jump in. in on, oh, yeah. Yeah, I want to jump on this, too, because Pascal's wager, you know, what if you're wrong, was largely the, the catalyst that drove me to atheism. I had an advantage over a lot of other believers in that I knew there were other religions and that these other religions didn't believe that theirs was the false religion and that everybody, you know, and that people in within the Christian denominations knew that theirs were the right ones and that they were the only ones that thought that. Now, I want to stop it here and point something out. Notice for Aaron Ra, the epiphany was, what if I'm wrong? And that was a positive thing. So as long as what if I'm wrong leads you to lose belief in God and to believe atheism, then that's clearly the right kind of skepticism. But if what if I'm wrong leads you to theism, well, then you're just giving into religious abuse that's willing to use fear and anything it can it can find to control people. I mean, did you guys catch that total double standard? I've encountered a lot of people, especially here in Texas, who don't seem to be aware that there are other religious beliefs. I mean, they, I, I don't know what they think about Islam or you know how to, how they categorize it. It's like they, they actually think that everybody else knows that their religion is false. Wait a second. I thought this was a show on counter apologetics. I mean, isn't this a show on counter apologetics? Wasn't that wasn't in the title? Uh, wasn't that the wasn't that in the setup? Isn't this supposed to be on counter apologetics? Do they think apologetics deals only with atheism? <laughs> I mean, this reminds me of that song, the you know, you're so vain. You probably think this song is about you. I mean, I, I, hey, I don't mean to break it to you guys. I, I know this might be some brand new information. But the world doesn't revolve around you. Uh, most of apologetics engages with other faiths and other worldviews, one of which is atheism. I mean, this kind of bigoted stereotyping of religious believers as being totally unaware of other faith systems or, that, or, or, or totally unaware that people disagree with them or that we all believe that, that, uh, that people of other religions really know their beliefs are false, I mean... <laughs> Come on. Does anyone take these people seriously? But they don't give a lot of thought to alternate beliefs. I remember being eight years old and remembering and comparing, you know, Buddha and Krishna and Jesus and, and Muhammad and thinking that maybe God visited different places at different times for, you know, for key elements of history and how to influence them. This is the way I was thinking when I was an eight-year-old child. But when I got older and I started thinking, okay, well, if you're a Christian— and you believe in God, and you die, and then it turns out that either Islam or Judaism is the true religion, then in either case, you're going to hell. So that's where Pascal's wager failed for me. Yeah. We should really look to our eight-year-old selves for the peak of our robust reasoning capacities. <laughs> and again, the wager isn't meant to be an argument for God. It isn't meant to adjudicate between religious beliefs. It failed because you were trying to leverage it in a way that it was never meant to be used. So you had to know which one was right, if there is one that's right. And so you had to, be, you had to find a way of determining that, and it couldn't be based on faith. And I think I'll leave it there. Yeah. So what? Again, what does that have to do with anything? How is that relevant at all? all. Here he's using a terrible concept of faith, uh, which is belief without evidence, but none of that has to do 
with the wager. It's not meant to get you to propositional belief of one religion over another. I mean, I mean, come on. I, I'm glad you said you're going to leave it there, but you really shouldn't even have started to begin with. Yeah, and to be fair, Blaise Pascal was a brilliant mathematician, and he understood that this was uh, that this was not a true dichotomy. That he was he was necessarily pitting uh, a denial of the Christian God up against acceptance of the Christian God. So he wasn't trying to make an all-encompassing statement uh, with this. Finally, and there it is. The first cogent statement made so far. That's right. He wasn't trying to do that. So why have you been treating it that way this entire segment? <laughs> I mean, did you think we wouldn't notice? Unfortunately, he didn't seem to, to, to recognize that if you don't make it an all-encompassing statement, if you don't take into account all the other things, you cannot properly do a cost-benefit analysis. It's like you know, trying to say, you know, what happens if I pay the electric bill versus not paying the electric bill without considering all of the other bills that you might have. Okay, so let me get this straight. So earlier you said it's a false dichotomy, but now it's not actually designed to even be a dichotomy. But then the only way for the argument to work is if it was a real dichotomy. Wow. Thanks for clearing that up for us, Maddie. Like it, like he's talking about, you know, Pascal knew what the real conditions were, and the way that he's being quoted now is unfair to the way that he actually thought. The same thing for Lord Kelvin, the the, the guy who composed or conceived the laws of thermodynamics. The way that he is quoted as, you know, that evolution is supposed to divide, defy these these natural laws that he conceived. The man himself was definitely a creationist. He was a he was a promoter of intelligent design long before that that term was coined. I think he was actually the first person to coin it, in fact. But he, when he came to describing evolution, he himself said, well, while he did not agree with it, he said that he would not, it, or he said that it was not unscientific. So he's not arguing against any scientific basis for evolution. He says there, he has no argument scientifically against evolution, and yet all of the people who cite him say that they have the proof and that, and that his laws were it. What? I, I mean, er, I, okay, I mean, I, I mean, I'm almost at a loss for words. What in the world are you talking about? I mean, this is the most jumbled comments so far in this entire episode in this entire episode and that's saying a lot since tracy has had some doozies i mean what in the world does lord kelvin have to do with any of this how is that relevant at all to this discussion so because kelvin had some great laws of thermodynamics and himself wasn't opposed to evolution and yet people quote him and collect correctly Therefore, what? <laughs> I mean, don't you know? Theists hate science and evolution. Look how stupid the wager is because it's posed by these anti-evolutionists. Hashtag science. If I can, not to keep beating up on Pascal's wager, uh, but one of the key things to me was this idea that there's no cost. You know, this idea that if you spent your life believing something and died and you turned out to be wrong, that you haven't lost anything. And to me, this is so obviously false 
because it means that you've spent your life believing something is true, or that, which is actually false, which has prevented you from finding out the truth and may have prevented you from living and enjoying your life to the fullest. So the idea that there's no cost to belief is just bizarrely wrong. Thanks, Maddie, for again showing just how ignorant and biased you are. No one says there is no cost. The claim is that in the end, you lose nothing. When you die, what have you lost if you believed and yet were wrong? You lose nothing. As an atheist, there's nothing to lose. There's nothing in the afterlife. When you dead, when you're dead, you're gone. There's no, I mean, there, there's nothing there. Now, now here, I'd also like to point out that it, that if Maddie wants this objection to be valid, by the way, then he's just given us the wager. Again, I'm not even a fan of the wager. But if if he wants this objection to work, then he's just undermined every single thing he said. Because if he thinks we should do a cost-benefit analysis to the degree that we should be concerned about what we lose in this life. If we don't, if we do believe and are wrong, say uh, living life to its fullest or whatever, then in principle it's valid to ask what is the cost benefit of the other side of that coin, namely not trusting in God and being wrong. Why is it okay for him to do a cost benefit analysis of believing and being wrong, but it's stupid to do it the other way around? Here, he's just undermined literally every single thing he said up until this point. So at the end of this whole section, we're left wondering, here's the big picture, what in the world does any of this have to do with apologetics? I mean, <sighs> okay, that was like 15 minutes of the most exclusively genetic fallacied psychologizing bigotry bias and just flat out distortion and dishonesty I may have ever heard from any atheist show I mean if it weren't so tragically bad it would almost be humorous and again this is what passes for reason for people this is what tens of thousands of atheists log into to listen to and get their talking points from this is the kind of drivel that I hear parroted unquestionably with no synapses firing in the gray matter between the ears from atheists over and 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 over again. This is what passes for reason. <laughs> it's tragic. Okay. We'll pick up here next time as they shift the topic to shifting the burden of proof. Well, thanks again for joining me here on the Freed Thinker podcast. If you'd like to get in contact with the show or have your feedback read out on the air, you can join me on Facebook at the Freed Thinker podcast. Find me on the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or email, email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening and hope you have a great rest of your week. <laughs>